Hi, my name is Claire Vincent, and I'm the host of House Call, an Affinity Strategies podcast. Episode 7, entitled Be Your Own Advocate, is an informative and insightful interview with Dr. Robert Popovian. It was truly a pleasure to connect with Robert. He provides loads of details on how to advocate for yourself. Among other topics, we talk about how state laws that regulate vaccine administration are impacting adult vaccine rates as well as health equity. Robert shares some of the therapies that are being worked on for the treatment of COVID-19 and the need for the federal government to remain focused on these efforts. And we also discuss in detail the impact insurers and pharmacy benefit managers have on drug pricing. Some information about Robert. Dr. Robert Probovian is the founder of the strategic consulting firm Conquest Advisors. He also serves as Chief Science Policy Officer at the Global Healthy Living Foundation, Vice President, Health Economics and Policy for Consensus Health, and is a Senior Healthy Policy Fellow at the Progressive Policy Institute. In fact, he is one of the few experts who has studied and published both clinical and policy-related economic analyses, as well as one of a handful who have studied and published empirical data regarding emerging payment mechanisms in the U.S. healthcare system. Dr. Pabovian is published extensively and referenced on the impact of biopharmaceuticals and health policies on cost and clinical outcomes in the most prominent medical sources and media publications. He also co-hosts his own podcast called Healthcare Matters, and you can find and subscribe to it on your favorite podcast channel. He completed his doctorate in pharmacy and master of science in pharmaceuticals, economics, and policy degrees at the University of Southern California. Enjoy episode seven of House Call. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really happy to be here. Well, it is a pleasure to have you. So say, I thought I would start off today by... Um, you know, of course, remarking on the fact that you are a pharmacist by trade, in fact, a PharmD. Why did you decide to go into the medical field? So I get that question commonly. And the easy answer is, you know, my father was a pharmacist. He worked in the pharmaceutical industry as a manufacturing pharmacist for several decades. And, you know, that's the household I grew up in. But the reality is the reason I got attracted to the medical field or the pharmaceutical specifically is because in third grade, and not too many people know this, I was diagnosed with rheumatic heart disease. Mm. Uh, and penicillin saved my life. That was the treatment. And if there was no penicillin, I would not be here today. And from then, then on, I realized I was fascinated by treatments. And I felt that, you know, diagnosis is great, but diagnosis is just provides the question and really mm -hmm. the treatment and now in most cases surgery is the answer. So I was always fascinated by the pharmaceutical end of our healthcare industry rather than the diagnosis. The diagnosis is fantastic. It's important, but without the therapy, that's where you help patients. And that's mm -hmm. where I was helped when I was younger. So. Mm. It's very, very interesting. Robert, were you a practicing pharmacist earlier in your career? I've never practiced. Actually, I uh, was in academia. I did uh, come out of my PharmD program. I did an internship at the county hospital at the University of Southern California and primarily focusing on infectious diseases, pharmacology, bacteri bacteri bacteriology, antibiotics. 
And then after that, I went back and did a two-year stint as a fellow and also got my master's in pharmaceutical economics and policy, again, at USC. And I was doing research primarily in payment reform in healthcare, Mm. uh, Mm. looking at payment models and things like that. And I was recruited by industry at that point to go and work for a pharmaceutical company. Oh, very interesting. Very, very interesting. Thank you for sharing that about yourself. Appreciate that. Say, when I was preparing for our episode today, I read an article that you co-authored for the March 2021 Washington Examiner. One of the areas that you write about is the impact of state laws on the administration of vaccines by pharmacists. How do these laws impact public health? Well, first of all, the laws uh, governing pharmacists' ability to immunize are a mess in the state. They're all over Mm. the map. Some states allow pharmacists to have the same authority to immunize patients or vaccinate patients as physicians, and um, others severely restricted. And that's a problem because the goal for me is to allow pharmacists to have the same authority to immunize patients as physicians do. And that means that if the vaccine is FDA-approved, or authorized or a CDC recommended, then the ph- pharmacist should be able to immunize. And, you know, we, we don't have to look far to see what the impact has been. I mean, December of 2021, by December 2021, pharmacies had provided over 200 million of the COVID vaccine in the federal mm-hmm. program and in many more in the state program. In mm-hmm. 2020-2021 uh, season, the flu season, they provided 47.7 million flu vaccinations. And if you look at physicians, they provided 32.8. So it's very complimentary. And mm-hmm. most importantly, in this country, with regards to adult immunization and vaccination, we have an issue that we have low vaccination rates. It's not like we have high vaccination rates. We don't need to do anything else. We are struggling to get adults vaccinated. And mm-hmm. if you look at every indication, every indication, indicator regarding uh, government statistics, we're below what is needed to really appropriately have a fully immunized adult population in the U.S. Mm. And if I'm hearing you, Robert, it, it sounds like it's an ac- it's a bit of an access issue. And if pharmacists um, weren't inhibited in some states, we, we would have a better shot at, at actually getting the shots in people's arms. Yeah, and study after study has shown, I mean, the study, one study found that there was an overwhelming number of patients preferred to receive their vaccinations from a pharmacy. It was published uh, a few years ago as opposed to a physician's office because it's easier to get to pharmacists and mm-hmm. pharmacies and to a pharmacist. Uh, and, you know, it's also it's going to improve Equity uh, study in 2018 examined the experience of African-Americans in pharmacy-based services. And that's who was mostly willing to go to a pharmacy for their vaccination because in our low-income communities, that's commonly what the access problem is. The patients Mm -hmm. have better access to pharmacies than they do to physician services. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's very... It's a very interesting um, article that that you co-authored. I'm wondering what kind of progress has been made to eliminate the barriers to pharmacist vaccine administration? 
So uh, there has been progress made. States every year expand the authority of the pharmacist to immunize. Uh, and, you know, with regards to the federal level, um, we had um, when the pandemic hit and the vaccines became available, the federal government had to step in and provide uh, authority, emergency authority to pharmacists to be able to immunize the COVID vaccine. If not, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have been able to have the pharmacists uh, vaccinating. So, yes, progress is being made, but it's slow. And what we've mm-hmm. learned in this country, one of the things that I, in another paper I wrote, and actually I co-authored with the head of uh, vaccines for Pfizer at that point. He was the head of vaccines. I was at Pfizer as the VP of government relations. And we discussed how in the early days of the pandemic, if you think about it, the first few months of the pandemic when everything was shut down, pharmacies and pharmacists were the only healthcare professionals that patient had access to at the community level. I'm not talking about emergency rooms or hospitals, mm-hmm. but if, as a patient, you wanted to see a healthcare professional in person, that's the only place you could go. You couldn't, all the physicians were doing telemedicine, a lot of the dentists and all the other healthcare professionals had shut down their offices. And patients who needed to see a healthcare professional for any reason, pharmacy was the only place they could go because they stayed open. Mm, that is fascinating. Really, really interesting. Robert, I'm wondering also, what is it about um, some states, and, or, or maybe phrased a different way, what is driving some of state governments to continue to restrict um, pharmacists and their ability to administer vaccinations? It's lack of information, frankly, or misinformation a lot of times. And uh, to be frank, it's the medical lobby. Uh, It's the medical societies, and they're they're undermining their own patients by doing that. Because I just finished doing a study that hopefully is going to be published in a peer-reviewed journal we've submitted for publication. And we looked at access to pharmacies versus physician offices who primarily immunize adults, right? So we're talking about family physicians, internal medicine, Mm -hmm. and primary care, and in low-income communities. And we did it based on census looking at communities that were low-income. And nationally, pharmacies have better access, patients have better access to pharmacies in those communities than to physician services. And that's just on raw numbers, right? It's just one pharmacy versus one physician practice. When you add in number of hours of operation, you know, because pharmacies in general are open about 60 hours per week versus physician Mm -hmm. offices about 40 hours, Mm -hmm. you add that component to it. And then the component that a lot of the new vaccines and minus COVID that are gonna be coming out into the market, especially for adults, are gonna be built under the Medicare Part D program, D as in dog. Mm -hmm. And only about 18 or 19% of physicians have the capability of administering those vaccines because they only, only that small percentage can bill for those vaccines. And you know how healthcare works. If you can't Mm -hmm. get paid for it, you're not gonna administer it. We're really doing a disservice to our patients here. And states are doing a disservice, and the medical lobby in some instances is doing a disservice. I think, as I said, vaccination is not something that requires a diagnosis, really. If it's mm-hmm. FDA approved, if it's authorized, if it's CDC recommended, everybody can get it. We don't have an issue of over-immunizing adults in this country. We're under-immunized. Under 
So it's we're really doing a disservice by not allowing all pharmacists, every state, to have the same authority as a physician in being able to administer a vaccine to patients. Mm-hmm. So what do you think it's going to take to, you know, make these changes? Uh, I think it's talking about these data that just came out about COVID and COVID immunization rates, uh, talking about how we needed an emergency order, you know, we need yeah. the PrEP Act for pharmacists to be able to immunize the COVID vaccine. And pe- people always tell me, well, pharmacists can't immunize. I said, no, they can't. If they could immunize the same level as physicians, then what would have happened? We wouldn't need the PrEP Act. We, didn't, we wouldn't need the government to step in and sort of supersede state laws, you know, in this case with COVID vaccine. Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, I think it's going to require those things. And also a discussion, a true discussion about equity. And equity is not just about race and ethnicity in this country. It's also about income. You know, poor mm-hmm. people have access issues in this country. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about pharmacy deserts. There's a lot of talk about, you know, inability of patients in rural communities to see physicians. We need to improve and expand access rather than curtail access. And pharmacies, to me, and pharmacists are the best proponents of being able to improve the immunization rates in this country, especially Mm -hmm. for adults. I'm not talking about pediatrics. Pediatrics is a whole different animal. And frankly, in the pediatric space, we do really well. Pre-pandemic, the vaccination rates were very high. United States, we were we had good herd immunity. Now, pediatrics is a different issue with immunization, which is during the pandemic and since then, pediatric vaccination rates have dropped significantly. Yeah. But there are, we need to address that separately than what I'm talking about, which is adult immunization in this country. Yeah. And and I'm assuming that we, we need to kind of have different sets of uh, solutions are just because, you know, administration of vaccines to adults is just very different than with kids. Exactly. And most kids get their vaccination in the pediatrics offices and there's no mm-hmm. access issues. There's no billing problems like the adult vaccine rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, peds, peds usually have very scheduled way of going seeing their pediatrician, you know, most, mm-hmm. most, I shouldn't say all of them, but almost universally, but, and we have some mandates with regards to pediatrics, right? School mandates yep. regarding, you can't go to school if you don't get your vaccine. We don't have such rules and regulations in adults. So we need to make it easier for adults to get their vaccination rather than yeah. harder. And yep. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. So recently, um, in your podcast, Healthcare Matters, you had an episode that focused on treatments and therapies for COVID outside of vaccination. Could you give our listeners a short rundown on the positive effects these treatments could have on fighting the pandemic? Yeah, sure. I mean, and by the way, I just got the data for it. It was the most downloaded episode we've ever had uh, oh, for some a- reason. I don't know why. We've done vaccine <laughs> episodes. We've done... Pricing, drug pricing, we've done healthcare cost episodes, but this was the number one so far, and it was just released uh, about a week ago. Um, you know, I'm a pharmacist. I'm a believer in immunization. I think vaccines should be the first step we take in managing disease because it's the most cost-beneficial prevention that we have in this country by far. 
you know, so patients need to get vaccinate, vaccinated before we talk about treatments. But we don't talk enough about treatments and we don't pay attention to it. And it sort of gets lost. And yes, prevention is very important, but the reality is that there are a group of patients that despite our best efforts, are just not gonna get vaccinated for a variety of reasons. It could be medical concerns, religious exemptions, and frankly, among adults, it's needle phobia. I mean, a good percentage mm-hmm. of adults have needle phobia and they're just not gonna get the vaccine. And in addition, we have breakthrough disease. We know that, right? Vaccines yeah. are going to be affected to a certain point, and then we're going to have breakthrough disease. So we need treatments. We need effective treatments in the market. And really what we talked about in the podcast was there are really two sets of treatments out there that have been sort of evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and sort of blessed. One is the antibody therapy, which have mm-hmm. been very effective. And we'll talk, I, I can elaborate on that, what's going on most recently with them. And then you have the oral therapies that are in the market now for treatment of, um, you know, COVID infection. So with regards to antibody therapies, they've been around for a while. They're very effective. It could be administered actually based on, again, another emergency order by the government through pharmacy, <laughs> some of these infusions, because they're actually injections. Uh-huh. Uh, now, FDA most recently um, withdrew the authorization for a couple of them. The reason being is that they found that these antibodies don't necessarily work mm-hmm. against uh, the Omicron, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's like 99% of the inf- infections for COVID was Omicron. Uh, the oral therapies are also authorized at this point, and they're becoming more and more available in the market and utilized. Uh, but that's what I want to see is to have choice. And the other thing is, remember, I told you my background was infectious diseases. And one of the things I learned in my time I was looking at bacteria and viruses and things like that is that these things mutate. And we've already seen this with COVID, right? It's been multiple mutations that we've seen. So we can't just have one or two of these therapies out there and assume everything is fine. We need to have Mm. multiple therapies, multiple ways of attacking the disease, because eventually what we've learned with antimicrobial therapy or antiviral therapy is that people develop resistance over time. Mm. Mm-hmm. And we need to have multiple choices in the marketplace, and research needs to continue. And that's what we talked about on the in the uh, podcast primarily. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. And so, what is kind of on the horizon with respect to you know alternative therapies as you know mutation is going to continue with respect to the coronavirus? There are multiple companies working on antibody therapies. There are multiple companies working on oral type of therapies. Obviously, there's some already been authorized. But, yeah, the good news is that companies are investing. And the mm-hmm. government's sort of helping them out and sort of not. They're not as focused, unfortunately, on this, these areas as they were on the vaccine. Mm-hmm. You know, we were just in a different time in the disease process, right? The vaccines really were really needed to get us out of the house and into the economy opened up. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not as focused, you know, they have done some work, they've done some of the, you know, uh, funding and purchasing, pre-ordering these medicines up front, but we need to do more. We need to make sure that most of these drugs are being manufactured in the U.S., that, you know, that there is good support for the manufacturing capabilities because, as these products come out, it's not just about getting the product 
developed and into the FDA in approval or authorization, but also being able to scale manufacturing. You know, mm. and that was the, mm. one of the things that happened with the vaccines is that people don't re- remember a lot of the companies that took the money from the government or had uh, contracts ahead of time before even the vaccine was approved, utilized that funding and also provided funding on their own at risk to really ramp up manufacturing. That's why as soon as these things were authorized by the Food and Drug Administration or the European Union, EUA uh, or Canada, you had access to these medicines immediately, you know, mm. at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, it's just really interesting. And I can only imagine the research the manufacturing is just going to continue to evolve as we continue to move through this pandemic. Absolutely. Affinity Strategies is a full-service nonprofit healthcare associate management and stakeholder engagement firm. They use digital-first solutions to promote transparent, efficient business practices. They partner with each client organization to maximize both staff and client expertise, experience, and relationships to meet goals. To learn more about Affinity Strategy Services, the team, and the mission-driven work they have done and continue to do, visit their website at www.affinity-strategies.com. All right. So Robert, I would like to shift gears a little bit here and talk about drug pricing. Why are you so passionate about the impact that insurers have on drug pricing? You hit my (laughs) soft spot. This is something I've worked on for a long time. And, you know, I would say uh, it starts with drug pricing, but also drug spending, which is totally two different issues and drug affordability and drug access. Those are four things that I'm passionate about. And, you know, it starts with develop, uh, addressing the value proposition that we bring to the healthcare system. It is very clear what the value proposition is for a physician in the healthcare system. It is very clear what the value proposition is for a pharmaceutical and also for a pharmacist, a nurse, a dentist, an optometrist, a hospital. It is not clear to me exactly what the value proposition of insurers is other than being a middleman or the pharmacy Mm. benefit managers in this case because of the pharmacy management of the pharmacy benefits. And they create more problems and create misaligned incentives that really drive up healthcare costs and pharmacy spending. Mm -hmm. I'll give you one example. We spend around 450 to $500 billion annually on drugs. This is both drugs that we pick up in a pharmacy and also medicines that are maybe given to us in a physician's office or provider's office. (sighs) We spend as much equal to that in administrative burden in the U.S. Wow. What is the value of that administrative burden? Why are we doing this? And nobody can answer, uh, provide an answer that is coherent enough to demonstrate their value. I don't have a problem with insurers and the pharmacy benefit managers. They ha- they do some services that are critical and are important, but they are not true payers of the healthcare system. That's another problem I have. They are misconstrued mm. as payers by a lot of different entities and enti- entities that should know better. The true payers in the healthcare system in the United States are the patients who open up their wallets every day to pay mm-hmm. for it. It is the employers who subsidize a lot of healthcare benefits 
for their patients. Uh, to a certain extent, it's the government, even though I would argue that the government is made up of taxpayers who happen to be patients who are paying for right. those. But, but insurers and pharmacy benefit managers are not payers. They're middlemen. They mm. take money from some entities and then funnel money to others and make money. And I don't have a problem with that as long as, you know, and we can get later on to what needs to happen with, this, with these entities. Uh, with regards to transparency and everything else, but we need to do a better job of make sure that they don't mess around and create chaos in the environment, uh, whether it's through administrative burden or misaligned incentives with formulary design and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Robert, if I am remembering this correctly, it wasn't, um, oh my gosh, maybe five, six years ago, um, CVS Pharmacy, um, I think they either bought a PBM or maybe created their own in-house PBM. Am, am I remembering that correctly? Yes. Uh, they they bought a PBM called Caremark. So yes. So they became literally a pharmacy, retail pharmacy slash a PBM. And, you know, most uh, year, like a couple of years ago, most recently, they also affiliated themselves with an insurer as well. Yes. And yes. so they vert- vertically integrated themselves. And uh, it's unfortunate because we don't have, it became more opaque because now they pass the money to each other. Uh, like there's no transparency on where the money flows anymore, especially mm-hmm. on the pharmacy side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't know uh, how, how it's being transported. Uh, just to give you an idea, of the $500 billion that we spent on drugs in the U.S., pharma companies give close to $200 billion of that back to the insurers or the pharmacy benefit managers in form of rebates and fees, right? Mm. So what? Mm-hmm. That's about two, uh, uh, you know, two out of $5 goes back into the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is an unknown what percentage of that money flows back into government, employers, uh, patients, which is pr- primarily zero for patients. Mm-hmm. The excuse is that all of it is being used to support premium support, like it goes towards paying premiums, but we don't know that because there is no transparency. And mm-hmm. for the life of me, I just don't understand how the biggest payer, we can consider a payer, the federal government, has no audit rights. Employers mm-hmm. have no audit rights of the books of the PBMs and insurers. And those are the things that are have has been created by this vertical integration, more opacity into the drug pricing issue and drug spending issue. And it's created more problems because what we've seen year over year now is formula exclusions, which never used to happen, right? But now yeah. I, uh, you know, you see this over and over again. I tweeted about a month ago. I said, well, it's the season again. It's football, fall football, and formula exclusions. You know, it's like, it's like <laughs> and, and they keep growing, the number of drugs that they're excluding. But there's no analysis of who are, what are they excluding? And what is the impact on the patient? Who's going to bear the, the poor mm-hmm. outcomes? You know, are they going to bear the poor outcome? Is it going to be the physician? It's going to be the hospital? It's going to be the patient themselves, you know? Uh, so right. Those are, those are issues that have come up from these integrations that have happened. Yeah. 
I bet. I bet. And how do formularies even end up on the excluded list? Like, how does that, what is that process? Well, the process is unknown because, I mean, Uh I just completed doing a study that hopefully we're going to submit for peer review publication that looked at one of the largest PBMs in the country. And we looked at their formulary exclusions to see what does that mean? You know, the 600, close to 600, I think, or 550 drugs that were excluded. I can't remember the exact number. What are they excluding? What classes of drugs? Are they excluding drugs that then um, they're providing alternatives to that are generics, or are they providing alternatives that are fully different molecules? You know, mm-hmm. so it's therapeutic mm-hmm. substitution. Are they even offering in certain cases? What we found out uh, is that it's about small number, but 10 or 20 cases, something like that, I can't remember exact numbers, they don't even provide an alternative. They exclude the drug from the formula. They don't even tell the provider, like, what is the alternative that they can use for the patient? Uh, in some other cases, which is even more troubling, going back to the misaligned incentives, in about 10 cases, they exclude a generic in favor of a brand name drug, which makes yeah. absolutely no sense, you yeah. know, because we all know generics are equally effective. They're the same drug. But they exclude the generic in favor of brand name drugs because, again, going back to that $200 billion in fees and uh, rebates, they make more money if they mm-hmm. use higher priced, higher rebated drugs because they keep a percentage of that. And that percentage is unknown. They claim yeah. it is in, uh, 90% they pass back, 95%, whatever percentage. But nobody knows. Nobody can verify because nobody has audit rights. They don't allow them to audit their books. And the employers and government who should be demanding this are sort of complacent about it. Mm. Wow. A lot of work needing to be done there, huh? A lot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So what do you think about the recently discussed congressional plan to allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices? Well, uh, you know, it's interesting because the drug price negotiation as a topic, right? So when you look at Kaiser Family Foundation has done surveys almost annually on this issue. And if you look at one year, you basically have the same result from previous years. So the the people's reaction, the consumer or the public's reaction to it is very much the same, has been the same for the last seven, eight years that they've been doing the survey. And it's very clear, and it's bipartisan, by the way, about mm. 90% of the people say they want drug price negotiation by the government. And that's where the headlines are, right? Those are the things you hear from certain congressional members that, look, the public says they want government involved in drug price negotiation. The problem is, and unfortunately, a lot of policymakers don't pay attention to the next three questions that are asked in the same survey. And the same people that say, yes, we want government to be involved in drug price negotiation, to the, to the same veracity and to the same percentages, say three things, which is very important. Mm. They say, number one, if you're going to negotiate for drug prices, government, I better save money. Yeah. Not some entity. I walk into Joe's pharmacy the next day, I'm paying less money out of mm-hmm. pocket. 
So that's the mm-hmm. only reason you should be negotiating. If I'm going to save money directly in my pocketbook. The second thing they say is that, fine, go ahead and negotiate. We agree with you. But hold on a minute. I don't want any kind of access restrictions with the therapies I'm on right now. And we know that's not mm-hmm. going to be the case because as soon as drug price negotiations happen, things have to change. You know, that's why when you see single-payer systems in the European markets, patients just don't have access to the same drugs that we have in the United States. It's yeah. a much smaller percentage. So the consumer is telling them, yeah, go ahead and negotiate, but you better not restrict, take away my medicine that I'm on right now. And the third thing they say is that make sure that we still get the research and development, that the mm. engine still works, we get new therapies into the market, that we get new innovation coming. And that's also a fallacy because, and the third point is very important because every single entity who has studied this issue of drug price negotiation has found one thing to be true, that the innovation will, will be hampered. Mm-hmm. Whether you look at CBO, whether you look at the Congressional Budget Office, you look at uh, reports coming from uh, staff in Congress, whether you look at public, uh, I mean, private companies doing the analysis, every single one say that we're going to have fewer drugs come to the market if this thing happens, which is fine. <sighs> so that's, let's put that as a reality that innovation is going to be hampered. Now, the argument has always been whether it's going to be 10 drugs, 30 drugs, 60 drugs, that's where we're getting to now. I think the answer has been given that the innovation is going to be hampered, but to what extent, and that's unknown. And, you know, the other fallacy that comes out of it with regards to research is that, well, you know, the government will backfill everything. You know, we will give, we'll fund research to NIH. And, Michael Mendel, who's a colleague of mine at the Progressive Policy Institute, I'm part of a think tank uh, also. Mm-hmm. I'm affiliated with PPI. We did a paper about drug price negotiation. We said two things. Number one, drug price negotiation doesn't guarantee that the patient's going to save money. So it doesn't address the underlying issue with patients have, which is the out-of-pocket cost. You know, mm-hmm. That's the number one thing. The number two thing is that if you look at the data, Private sector funds, for better or worse, about 75 to 80% of the dollars that go into research and development in this country. So there's no way we can backfill that if there's a drop in that to NIH and government funding, because then in that case, we need to increase taxes on individuals to be able to fund it. So I'm sort of an economist and I'm agnostic about drug price negotiation. I just think that whatever we're going to do, we better go in with our eyes wide open and -hmm. know what the consequences are going to be. And more importantly, what it's not going to do, which is is promising, which is to save patients money. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, great analysis of, of the congressional plan underway. I'm I'm wondering, Robert, which I'm, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this, you know, are there policies maybe either in other countries or maybe at the state level for prescription drugs that you think would be, you know, worth, you know, a second glance at, at the federal level that would actually improve things for patients and actually save money for them? 
yes, in the state level. I can't tell you on the uh, on the international level. Internationally, we there's one. Even though there's still one of the biggest problems I have with this whole market is the rebate contracting issue, and that creates almost it's the snowball effect that if we get rid of rebate contracting and go to net price contracting, which by the way, despite what the insurer lobby says or the pharmacy benefit management lobby says, currently is is in existence. That means there are entities that do net price contracting. One of the largest insurers in this country, Kaiser Permanente, uses mm. absolutely no pharmacy benefit management company. They don't do rebate contracting. They wow. basically ask for the net price. So it is there is ability to do this. So when yeah. somebody comes and tells you as an individual that this is like landing uh, you know, humans in Mars, that is yeah. not true. <laughs> It is being done currently in contractual agreements between pharma companies and Kaiser Permanente, which is one of the largest insurers yeah. in this country. Yeah. So, yeah. Fact, so rebate contracting is the one that I think creates a lot of the problems. So if you're not going to get rid of rebate contracting with, because of political reasons, and it's absolutely political uh, mm. why they're not doing it, then let's step back and create transparency. And that's what the states are trying to do in the states. Okay. Um, so what the state, uh, so states are trying to do is have passed legislation to say, okay, fine, we're not going to mess around with all of contracting on all these things. It's too complicated, whatever. What we want to know is that as an insurer, you have to report every dollar in rebates, fees, concessions, anything that you've gotten from pharma company, and what percentage of that dollar amount have you passed back on to the plan sponsor. Now, the plan sponsor can be the government, it could be the employer, it could be the individual patient, right? Because some of us purchase insurance on our own in the yeah. marketplace. And that's what it is. It's about transparency. So the first step is to create transparency and get the data of what is happening to this money flow. And then make sure that we are able to provide good policy solutions to address that after we have mm. the data. And that's another pet peeve of mine is that we try to do in this country a lot of times policy based on false information or, yeah. or inappropriate information. I'll give you one example. Like uh, there's always this discussion about drug prices that CBO put out several reports, congressional FAPAP put out several reports. When you look at those reports, they generally outdated data which is shocking to me because considering that we have real-time data for everything else in this country, but we can't get new data on pharmaceutical spending by the government, the largest payer can't get their hands on it. It's amazing yeah. to me that they're using, using 2016 data to justify legislation in 2022, basically. Wow. And then the second thing is that when you look at those reports, you, uh, you see statements like, Yes, we believe we believe that PBMs pass on 90% of the rebates back to the government. Or a PBM executive has testified that they pass back 90% of their... But there's no audit trail to be able to mm -hmm. actually just uh, to make sure that those numbers are correct, to verify mm -hmm. those numbers. So transparency to me that the states are trying to pass is the first step because I truly believe the federal government is incapable of doing anything because of political standoff and because of the PBM and insurer lobby.
that exists mm. right now. And we saw, mm. we saw a preview of that yesterday. Um, yesterday, there was a vote at the FTC, and the question was whether the FTC should study the anti-competitive nature of pharmacy benefit management companies and what are they doing with drug pricing, are they incre- increasing out-of-pocket costs, patient access, reducing patient access, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And they were looking at, because remember, three large pharmacy benefit management companies control 80% of the retail drug market in the U.S. Wow. Okay, so that was the question. Guess what happened? It didn't pass. <laughs> FTC punted it. It was a 2-2, uh, uh, basically, uh, deadlock uh, with the two Republicans voting not to go ahead and do it and the two Democrats voting for it. But the problem is this is a bipartisan problem because both political parties have shown over time that they're unwilling to unravel this enigma that exists. Yeah. So yeah. that was just the latest example of how both parties are not doing anything to help patients. Yeah, and that's incredibly disappointing um, considering you know we look to agencies like the FTC to insert themselves um, in a situation like this and, and try to make a difference for, you know, the consumer, right? That's the remit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One, one of the, I think one of the people who voted no against it said that, oh, that's not the remit of the FTC. And I'm like, okay, then what, what does what the is? FTC do? Because <laughs> protecting consumers, <laughs> tell me that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. So frustrating. On the brighter side of things, what are some federal regs that may help um, pharmaceutical access and or affordability? I think the biggest one would be to, to really go back and look at the rebate rule that was introduced by the Trump administration. It, became, it was passed and then was sort of withdrawn by the current administration to, because they used it as a gimmick to fund, um, uh, I believe, the infrastructure bill if I'm not mistaken. And it's it's unfortunate because that would have helped patients because one of the things that it would have done, and people don't realize this, and this is a very important point, pharmaceuticals, unlike any other part of the healthcare system, if you're a patient and goes into a pharmacy and you have a deductible or coinsurance, which is very different than having a copay, right? Copay is something that is stable. You know how much you're going to pay exactly for whatever drug, whatever tier it's on. Coinsurance is a percentage of the drug cost, and deductible is the full cost because before you meet your deductible. People don't realize that pharmaceuticals, unlike the other segments of the healthcare system, when a patient walks into a pharmacy, their deductible or coinsurance is based on the retail price, not mm. the net price of the drug that the insurer or the PBM has negotiated on their behalf. This is very different because when you yeah. and I walk into an optometrist's office, a dentist's office, a physician's, a hospital, whatever other healthcare service, your deductible or coinsurance is based on a negotiated fee that's been done on your behalf with that provider or that entity. Mm-hmm. Except for pharmaceuticals, somehow PBMs have bamboozled the entire system to say that is not doable here. So I would say that's what, going back to the rebate role and not necessarily getting rid of rebate contracting, but mandating that the patients get 100% of all of the sort of concessions, or at least their insurance deductible and coinsurance is 
calculated based on the net price would mm-hmm. be a significant benefit to the patients. That's the second thing I have to say about out-of-pocket costs is that there's a lot of rhetoric about everybody suffering from out-of-pocket costs. That is not true. Actually, out-of-pocket costs on average have dropped in the United States for drugs. We pay less actually in real dollars today for out-of-pocket costs for drugs on average than we did 10 years ago. There's two reasons for that. Number one, yeah, number one reason is genericizing of the market. Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, you know, market for generics was maybe about 60%, 70%. Now it's about 90%. So nine out of 10 prescriptions are generics. The second reason is that we're, we're mostly on chronic meds that have turned generic. So generic sizing of the market, but treatment of chronic disease with these generic drugs have helped with that. Mm, okay. okay. But it's a small percentage of patients who are not necessarily severely sick, but they have a disease that there is no generic alternative out there you yeah. know, for them to be treated by, who are taking the brunt of this issue that we just talked about. Mm. So we need to fix it because they're really, it's, it's a small percentage, don't get me wrong, but they're the ones who are being hurt by mm-hmm. the model that we have currently set up. It's funny because pharmaceuticals, and you're very well entrenched in the healthcare system, you know how insurance works. Insurance mm-hmm. generally should pay for expensive stuff and let the patient pay for the cheaper stuff. Um, for pharmaceuticals, it's the opposite. We cover everything cheap, which are the generics, and nothing that is expensive and branded, which is which is terrible for people who have no other alternative but to take that branded medicine. Right. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily sicker. It just means that, unfortunately, the roulette wheel of disease landed you as a patient on an area that there is no generics. It's all brand name drugs. It's a new innovative drug, you know, yeah. while somebody else as sick can land in a disease area like cardiovascular where there are a lot of generics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that small portion of the sick population is disproportionately impacted. Exactly. Yeah. Gosh. Wow. Well, Robert, this has been a fascinating uh, conversation. I thank you so much for, um, sharing all of your interesting insights and uh, the studies that you have done, have gotten underway uh, recently again. Really look forward to um, maybe checking in with you again on some of the outcomes of those studies, and uh, we can continue to keep our listeners posted. That'll be terrific. Looking that's forward awesome. to it. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, we are going to switch gears radically here and uh, move into our lightning round questions. So are you ready? Yes, I am. Awesome. All right. Describe yourself in three words. Curious, helpful, unrelenting. Oh, those are awesome descriptors. Favorite day of the week? Thursday. It's almost weekend. Ah, Very good. Very good. How about the last song you downloaded? Um, My all-time favorite song, Billy Joel, I'm old school. My life, I live with the lyrics. Ah, Very good. Love, love me some Billy Joel as well. 
Would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or be able to talk to animals? Every language. I think uh, if you know a language, you know a human and you can communicate with them. That means you get to know them better. That's awesome. Favorite junk food? It's not really junk, but cheese and fresh bread. I mean, that's my all-time sin in eating. Well, I'm sure it tastes good. Um, Ask permission or forgiveness? (laughs) Always forgiveness. Ask my wife. It's always forgiveness. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. What is the most boring thing ever? Um, sleeping. I can't wait to get up and get going in the morning. I just sleeping is a waste of time for me, but I have to do it. Yes, as a medical care professional, you know you have to get some sleep, right? Yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> How many times did you sneeze in the last seven days? Mm. <laughs> probably seven times because I probably sneeze once a day at least. <laughs> All right. Well, that's not too bad based on uh, information I've gathered from my other guests. So you're doing pretty well, I think. Uh, what is the fastest you've ever driven a car? Uh, much younger days before kids and wife, uh, 110. Uh, we were going from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. Nice. Well, you got there quickly, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> What's for dinner tonight? Dinner uh, Friday, so sushi, most likely. Oh, delicious. One of my favorites. Dawn or dusk? Uh, dawn. I told you, I can't, I, I, I want to get up and get going. <laughs> dusk That's... to me is like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Is it wrong for a vegetarian to eat animal crackers? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's cannibalism, right? Sort of a weird way. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I made you laugh. Um, who do you admire? Um, my parents, first and foremost, because they left everything. Uh, in a very lucrative, easy life to come to the United States because they wanted a better life for us and they wanted to get away from war and political uh, mischief. Mm-hmm. My wife and kids, because they allowed me to go to D.C. and play policy and politics for the last eight years. And, you know, my wife's been unbelievable. But individuals, you know, uh, that I admire, I've always admired Winston Churchill because of his command and his will. Mm-hmm. And remember the unrelenting way of looking, looking things. And Magic Johnson. I grew up with mm-hmm. Magic Johnson and in Los Angeles. And uh, he's an unbelievable role model for me because he put, he walks the walk and talks the talk. He helps yeah. his community. He gave back so much to South LA. And I worked there and I, and I went through several years of internship in that community. So, oh, Well, that is a collection of most admired. So thank you for sharing that. What are you currently reading? Uh, trying to get through it and it's hard with work, but Edison. It's oh. A biography of. Yeah, very interesting Tell- guy. 
Yeah, yeah. Are you enjoying it so far? Yes, I I only read nonfiction, and I okay. love reading about people. Like I just finished about a year ago, Wright Brothers uh, autobiography of Wright Brothers, and it was just fascinating to me. I, yeah. That's awesome. What is your dream job, other than the one, of course, you currently have? Uh, the first one I ever had, which is working at Baskin Robbins. I mean, <laughs> have you ever seen anybody unhappy walk out of an ice cream store? <laughs> you make no, I have not. <laughs> yes. Ice cream is happiness. <laughs> It is. It is. It is uh, fairly uh, non-controversial. And um, yeah, it just does bring a smile to most people's faces. Um, great, great choice. Great choice. So Robert, I, I typically like to ask our guests when we are um, toward the end of our episode, if you have any kind of final thoughts just for the average listener on, on some of the things that we talked about today. Um, educate yourself. I think one of the, you alluded to the podcast that I do, which is Healthcare Matters. It's really intended for patients. It's not for healthcare professional or policymakers. Educate yourself because you need to become an advocate for yourself, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Uh, the, there are too many conf- conflicts that go on with the organizations and policymakers and institutions that we currently have that are going to undermine your needs. So educate yourself, become an advocate for yourself, join an organization that will advocate for you and be able to help you as an individual patient. Yeah, that is such great advice. And perhaps unknowingly uh, has been a bit of a theme for several of our episodes. So thank you for echoing that uh, incredibly important message for, for our listeners. And Thanks again, Robert. You have been a fantastic guest, and uh, I promise we'll catch up again here uh, later this year. Thank you. Robert packed an incredible amount of information and practical advice into this episode. He shared his research and thoughts about the disservice state governments and other medical associations are doing to patients by restricting pharmacists from administering vaccines at the same level as physicians. He talked about the lack of transparency regarding what insurers and pharmacy benefit managers bring to the table in terms of drug pricing for patients. He also reviewed the cons of the federal government negotiating drug pricing for the Medicare program, and he also talked about the truths and myths of -of out-of-pocket drug costs. Robert is doing such important work on behalf of all patients. I encourage you to check out his podcast, Healthcare Matters, and stay apprised of the research he is contributing to in support of health equity. Check out our show notes for additional details, and I hope to catch up again with Robert later this season. Today's episode was written and researched by Affinity Strategies intern Melissa Tully and me, Claire Vincent, with technical production provided by Derek Anderson and music from Caleb Justinger. Be sure to follow our series to stay up to date on new episodes. Share it with your friends, and if you enjoy what you're hearing, kindly give us a like. That helps us get the word out about our series. You can expect a new episode to drop sometime during the third week of each month. Thank you so much for listening to House Call, an Affinity Strategies podcast. We appreciate you so, so much. I look forward to catching up with you again in just a few weeks. Thanks again for listening. This is Clara Vincent. 